0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pearls of Wellness, brought to you by the Center for African American Health. I'm your host, Deidre Johnson. In this episode, we're discussing wealth generation with our special guest, Jais Johnson. Thank you so much for tuning in to this important and timely discussion. So today I'm so excited to have joining us Jice Johnson. I first remember meeting Jice when I um, it started actually at the Center for African American Health and I was a black, at a black women's health symposium. And I remember someone um, with the black business initiative was having a session around the importance of entrepreneurship and I sat in on it and I thought, you know what, this is so needed. Well, fast forward, it's been Uh, probably seven plus years. And the seeds that she has planted are really transforming our community. So I know you're very busy, Jice. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And why don't um, don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so folks know exactly um, the many facets
1: of the things you're doing these days. I feel like I'm still not good at the tell me about yourself introduction. Let me see what I can do. (laughs) I am originally from Oakland, California. I am a proud mom of three. Uh, I'm a U.S. Army veteran, and um, I hold both a master, a bachelor's and a master's in business and organizational leadership and management. I am a serial entrepreneur and an investor, but I really feel like kind of my overall hat is a community member. And um, I think that's important to me because it guides um, a good deal of what I do um, is not only what is in it for me and my family and how I build my legacy, but also my contribution to the community. Thank you. So th- I'm glad those are a lot of hats, but it's interesting. So,
0: you know, a lot of, a lot of people think about being an entrepreneur, being an investor, but that's not how they just, they don't start that way. How did you, after being a vet in education, how did you make that decision to really believe in yourself and start down that path?
1: So I had gotten out of the military kind of by force, not really by choice. I was honorably discharged, but um, at the time I w- it was a family decision. And um, and it wasn't a career move that I had originally anticipated, and so I was kind of floundering for a while. Um, I worked a little bit of retail and um, did a little taxes and kind of, uh, you know, was just trying to make a little bit of money here and there. Um, and I ended up being recruited into a multi-level marketing company, and what that showed me was. Um, in particular, it showed me a Black man who was making a lot of money, who had built a strong network that wasn't in entertainment or sports. And I had an opportunity to go to his beautiful home. He had this gorgeous mansion, or he has this gorgeous mansion um, in Atlanta, Georgia. and. Um, while obviously I didn't stay with um, the insurance company, I did have an opportunity to see entrepreneurship in a different way. And it really got me started on other passions of mine and things that I liked. And um, and so I started little businesses here and there with things that I kind of had a niche for or a knack for.
0: Okay. And um, what's also interesting is Not only did you go down that entrepreneur pathway, but you took a pathway that really reminds me of what you said about focusing on community. Because when I think about you, I think about someone who's helping to build the capacity of other entrepreneurs as well as doing your own thing.
1: Oh, now that, that's a a little bit of a different story. So um, I was already in a serial entrepreneurship. I had started quite a few things. I moved here to Denver, and um, I ended up being a part of an organization called Shop Talk Live. So uh, in 2014, Shop Talk Live was doing uh, an event where they were featuring the documentary done by Tariq Nasheed called Hidden Colors. And specifically, what caught my attention was Dr. Claude Anderson, um, a renowned um, doctor that that talks about Black economics. He spoke to the fact that the Black community would always be an underclass in America because we had no economic leverage and we had no economic footing. And uh, he talks about he talks about quite a bit. He has a, a five uh floor platform that he discusses within the black community but it starts with entrepreneurship it actually starts with creating a strong uh, economic base and so that really piqued my interest because i felt like maybe i had been living with my head in a hole or something like i didn't understand what he was alluding to and so i started doing some research based off of some of the data and statistics that he had spit out and i Felt like I fell into this rabbit hole. I mean, it was rapid. Um, and when I started looking up issues around access to capital for the Black community, business um, ownership, what we looked like in terms of hiring and employees, and like what were the markers for creating successful business versus what were the markers that Black businesses, um, were you know seeing at that time, it was like, oh, uh, it just felt like my mind was blown open. And what solidified that for me was a woman named Maggie Anderson who had done my, the My Black Year experiment in Chicago with her family. And they attempted to spend a full year only buying black. And even in Chicago, um, which you know certainly has a, a larger black population than here in Denver, they could not buy black 100% of the time. And I thought, well, let me start looking at what I could buy black here in Colorado. And I could hardly buy anything. Black in Colorado. And so, um, so that was really how I got started here was thinking about how can I help to facilitate that process? I know that we're entrepreneurs. I know we're innovative. I know we're creative. Why don't we have successful businesses? And what can I do? What can I do to help with that? And that's
0: wonderful. And so it definitely has grown over the years because now you've got the, the Black Boss Summit, and um, I knew that it got a lot of national attention, but when I went to the most recent one, which was a fantastic event, um, and there's the pitch competition and the young woman from South Carolina, um, who was fantastic, won that $20,000. There's, there's a journey between, I think I'll get this started, and to where you are now.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, it has grown. It's grown year over year, um, and we've continued to add other programs, and um, and we've switched up a lot. You know, this has been a space where I have had to not be afraid to fail. I've had to be okay to try something, launch it, um, test it, mm, decide it doesn't work, and drop it. Or yeah, I think we've got some traction here, and you know, try to grow it. Um, and the Black Boss Summit is certainly one of those things that we. Uh, got some traction on. And uh, and so it's continued to grow. And this past year was the sixth annual Black Boss Summit. So that's been very exciting. Um, and we've added components to it. So the p- Pitch Black competition is a component we added to it. it this is the second uh, year that we did that. And, uh, and we're excited to see it grow nationally. I, I'm excited to see it grow nationally for sure. Here at Pearls of Wellness, our goal is to
0: really talk about the social determinants of health. When we think about entrepreneurship and income and our economic strength is one of our social determinants of health. You know, we really saw that um, the hit that we took during COVID. I know both in Denver, or actually in Colorado, and nationally, I heard that up to forty percent of Black businesses were just wiped out. So if we didn't know it before then, we kind of knew it now, but then we also have had lower numbers just because it's so much harder for us to get the support we need, the seed funding that fr- flows freely to other groups. Can you talk a little bit about your view on the systemic importance um, when looking at health, how the work that you're doing really is connected to that overall health of a community?
1: Yeah, so I think we first have to understand that economics like truly is at the base of everything that we do. And um, meaning everything that we see from legislation and the work that it takes to get any new laws or policies passed to our stoplights and our streets and our infrastructure, to our schools, to our healthcare system, um, to our ability to buy, um, you know, healthy food, right, and make healthier choices. Um, I just actually came back um, today from the chiropractor, right, like that costs money. And um, to be able to make those types of healthy choices um, are often afforded to those that have a bit of a stronger economic standing than we do. So Mm -hmm. I think we see those, uh, we see a lot of disparities play out in so many ways in so many spaces. And Oftentimes we're gonna find that it's gonna come back to economics. So I just I wanna I wanna preface it everything else that I'm saying with economics is truly at the base of all that we do. And when we as a community have a weak economic base, meaning we don't really have assets um, that we own or dollars that we control, what we see in that space is us not having the agency to control what's happening in our day-to-day lives and what's happening inside of our communities. So You know, what does that look like? How does that affect someone in particular in adulthood who doesn't have uh, the agency to control what's happening with their children, uh, what's happening in their home, to be able to select the types of places that they want to live, maybe what they're subjected to inside of their homes, um, their ability to be able to provide for their families. It causes an immense amount of stress. And what we know about stress, of course, is that stress can be can have both short-term, but more importantly, long-term consequences on our health. And so anytime that you're put in a position where you are not certain that your basic needs are going to be covered, that's going to create an element of stress. And so we have an entire socioeconomic group of people um, that are under a constant level of stress.
0: You know, that is so true. And then when you think about how that it's really passed down generation to generation. You know, you mentioned being a serial entrepreneur. Um, I am the daughter of one. And I have to say what I can see now looking back, what being raised by an entrepreneur did, what being raised by an entrepreneur did for my sister and I, is that we really move through the world. It's not, can we do something? But what is it we wanna do? And what is it that interests us? And I admit that's a level of a mental freedom that I took for granted for so very long. But then when I'm talking to um, young people and others in our community, there's a, there is a certain kind of self-efficacy of, can I do this? You know, sometimes we think it's safer to have that job when really there's no safety in that at all. And a friend of mine who is working in London now is a venture capitalist, He recently wrote a book and he named it um, We Don't Need Permission. I thought that was so interesting. because, In a way, so often we don't realize it, but it's almost as if we're waiting for permission, but we're the ones we're waiting for because, in my view, only Black people are going to create jobs for Black people. And so as you work with other entrepreneurs um, and as you think about the legacy you want to leave your own children, what are some of the gems or advice you would have for someone who's been on the fence thinking, oh, I'd love to do that, but no, no, I can't.
1: You know, um, you 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 touched on quite a few points, but I'll start with the the last one. Um, I think- you yeah,
0: wandered around a lot, that one, sorry.
1: <laughs> That's all right. I think part of that is like we have to be in a, I think people have to understand the concept of risk tolerance right and also understanding that you can actually um increase your tolerance to risk uh it's risky i mean life is risky right i mean you can step outside your house and uh, you can be in your house i mean we can look at brianna taylor who's in her bed sleeping, right? And so like life in itself is risky. And I think sometimes it's making a determination about what you feel are the pitfalls or the downfalls. Like I always ask myself, what's the worst that can happen? And then really assessing like, what do I think is the absolute worst that can happen? Because entrepreneurial journey is, of course, it's not an easy one either. And so you can go to work and experience, um, you know, uh, issues with with fair pay, you can experience microaggressions. You can experience very um, blatant uh, aggressions, uh, or you can, you know, step out into the entrepreneurship world where you're also going to experience and face a level of um, racism and a lack of access to capital, and you know, customers who don't trust you or want to buy from you. And some of those customers are going to look like you, and they don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to buy from you, right? And so I think there is uh, quite a bit to unpack in what it. Looks like, but ultimately, the concept of agency um, is saying that you have the ability to take your destiny uh, into your own hands, and you have the the uh, the ability to go for it, to give it your best shot, to try, uh, right. fail, and try again if that's what it takes. And so, I think sometimes people have to think about, you know, what's the worst that can happen if I got out there and I gave uh, the life that I really want to live, if I gave that my best shot? And then how does that change the trajectory of my family? And so oftentimes we're thinking, what happens if I fail? But, uh, you know, I don't take credit for this, but it's something that has deeply resonated with me ever since I heard it is what happens if I succeed? And mm-hmm. um, and I have chosen to hold on to the that thought, what happens if I succeed? And, and that empowerment has given me a lot of um, a lot of space to really go for it, to go for something, be okay that it doesn't work out the way that I want to, um, be wildly surprised when it does, and feel very proud of myself when it goes as expected, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I love that, that
0: positive framing of what happens if I succeed, because I really think so often when we can move in that direction, we actually end up in places we never dreamed of as things unfold. Um, so say a little bit more about that, because, you know, I'm a single mom, you're a single mom. And I have to admit, personally, um, once I became a mom, my risk tolerance dropped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, a lot of that was because of the the circumstances of, I won't know. Yeah. But yeah, my risk tolerance dropped a little bit until they got older. And um, I've been so impressed by not only what you've done as a mother of young kiddos, but how many things you're doing? And so how do you manage integrating life, raising kids, and work?
1: Yeah, um, that is a good question. uh, Because I feel like prior to COVID, actually, um, I I used to be very defensive and upset with people. And I had to really work on this. This was like a place of healing for myself. I had people who would say something to me about having my daughter with me. Let me back up. The one thing that I can appreciate about when I was in Primerica and multi-level marketing, and I don't know if this is in all offices, this was in my office specifically. Um, the, the man that I was, uh, under, his name was Sam Shepard. I keep saying was like it's past tense. To my knowledge, Sam Shepard is still alive and well. So (laughs) let me call him is Sam. His name is Sam Shepard. Um, he was very family oriented. So his wife was there with him. And his uh, son was a part of the of the business and things of that sort. And so he was very open and amicable to having this like family atmosphere. So very early on in my entrepreneurial journey, I would bring my daughter, my oldest daughter, with me. Uh, at the time, she was still in a car seat. She was about one years old. And I would bring her with me um, to my appointments. I would bring her with me to all my meetings. And so I started my entrepreneurial journey with my daughter hand in hand. And it got to a point where uh, there was not a place that I could separate. Like I didn't have enough money to get a babysitter. I didn't have enough money to uh, put her in childcare. And so uh, she was pretty much with me all the way up until kindergarten. And I took her with me everywhere. That's how she got the title mini Me. But as I got older, and specifically when I started here in Colorado, um, and, and I don't know that it's a Colorado thing, it's just my experience when I got here, and I had her with me everywhere, or when I started the Black Business Initiative, and I was pregnant with my middle child, and uh, and I was, you know, doing meetings while nursing or bringing in my diaper bag and saying, hey, I have something to say about that, but I'm also going to change this diaper, excuse me, and um, and really working and integrating my children into my lifestyle, that was a place where people were talking about me. Like people were saying things to me, like, you know, that's not appropriate, or, you know, you don't have anybody to help you. And what I thought was really interesting about our community is that oftentimes we try to assimilate into white community. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I remember growing up is that in particular in the Asian community, They didn't have that problem there was a donut shop that was up the street from me. There was a a corner store um, around the corner from me that were both owned by Asian families and their children were always in the business. One of them I went to school with, we were in the same grade. Um, He would go home after school and he would be working inside the business, even at eight years old. And so, you know, you see that in the nail salons, if you go into an Asian nail salon, it's very likely that they will have their children in the back of the uh, salon. Right. And so I think there's a space that we have struggle to think about how to properly integrate ourselves and our children in that space, which can really help with what that risk looks like. Because then my biggest cheerleader for a long time was my daughter. Like I'm pumping myself up and she's watching me in the mirror telling myself, okay, girl, you got this. You're going to go out there. You're going to crush it. And she's like, you got it, mom. (laughs) And so from a financial perspective, it's definitely difficult to figure out how do you take that risk when you have your children? But I would say that coming on the other side of this, um, as businesses have gone belly up, and as businesses have not succeeded, and as businesses, um, I still have businesses right now that are struggling. I have a brand new business that I just launched. I still have the Black Business Initiative. Like I have a, my hands in a lot of things, and um, it's it's a good feeling when your kids kind of have an understanding of. Who you are where you sit in community what your values are what you believe in and more more importantly when they think that you're the one that can you know make this happen and they believe in you sometime more than you believe in you and so there are times that I'm like money is really tight but my my middle my middle child she comes up to me she says mom but you're the money woman so you got this and I'm like what an affirmation <laughs> So, um, you know, I, I, I wish that I could say that there was like some easy way to, you know, increase that risk tolerance because we are worried about our children. But is it better for our children to see us coming home suffering from the microaggressions that we're experiencing at work? Is it better for our children to see us, you know, pouring ourselves into a nine to five that we know isn't covering our bills? Is it better for us to see for our children to experience us working two jobs and three jobs and they're moving from place to place or they're being left by themselves for extended periods of time because we have to, you know, uh, try and work out these situations? Is it better for them to see us trying to do Uber Eats and run around? and drive our car for hours and hours with them in the back seat while we try to deliver food for people. I don't know that those images of us are better for them. uh, And I don't know that the end result ends up necessarily being better for them or better for us as a a family and certainly not better for our legacy because we know that in most cases, um, a nine to five job is not going to um, yield you uh, wealth. So you're not building wealth. Right. Well, like the
0: data really shows that. Well, I love I love what you shared. Um, not only that she was one of your biggest cheerleaders, but when you think about how she's learning to walk through the world as a young woman, that's fantastic. Thank you. Earlier, you were mentioning um, about the difficulty in accessing capital. And I don't know if there's some... Data you can share and we can add some of that later, but could you also share kind of the work and we haven't had a chance to talk, so I might be behind on some of this, but some of the work you've done to create greater access to capital for our community.
1: I appreciate that um, question because that has been one of the things that I have worked on um, for a long time. So when I started the Black Business Initiative, I had one of the five pillars of BBI is access to capital. And um, the other five pillars, I'll just rattle them off. It's it's um, acumen, uh, mentorship, access to capital, patronage, and policy. And so everything that I do inside of the Black Business Initiative is built on top of um, those five pillars. And the access to capital piece was, um, it was always important. And I feel like it was highlighted during the pandemic because accessing capital in order to keep your business going was was really important. And so um, you're right, there were about 40, roughly 40% of black businesses shut down. But here's the thing about black businesses. Um, about 96% of Black businesses are single member LLCs and sole proprietorships. Meaning if you have a business and it's just you, you represent 96%. You represent almost all of Black businesses across the entire country. There are very few Black businesses that have uh, managed to raise enough capital to hire outside of like a family a family run operation. And so like hiring someone else, making sure that you're not only able to pay yourself uh, a livable wage and salary, but also that you're covering another livable wage and salary for someone else. And what we also know is that businesses tend to see the most success when they have five or more employees. So that means that they are able to scale, they are able to separate out the tasks and the assignments and the jobs that need to be done inside of the business. And that helps them to continue to grow so uh, black businesses are just not there as a whole and so when the original ppp loans for example came out um, they didn't account for for example self-employed right that was like the second round so there were a lot of immediate disparities that happened with allocation of dollars um, just to help businesses stay open and what made this the most egregious to me is that our country has a history of providing relief and opportunity for businesses that do not look like ours and um, for business owners that do not look like us. And so uh, while I already knew that this was really important, what I started to understand as uh, in particular, not just with the pandemic, but most specifically with the murder of our brother, George Floyd, is that businesses um, and corporations started pledging billions of dollars, but our community doesn't have the institutions to actually catch those dollars. So we have organizations. We even have nonprofits, but we don't have institutions. And I started to categorize an institution as an organization that can house, grow, and redistribute resources. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can think of those resources in a lot of ways, like um, a hospital, for example, is an institution, right, because the resources there are medical resources and and can redistribute those resources. Same thing with like a school education access to information is a resource, and the school redistributes that resource that resource to those that attend the school. So what was happening is is that um, there were organizations that were looking for places to put dollars um, that they were pledging, but there were no organizations that were structured to actually hold those dollars, uh, grow them, and then redistribute them out to our community based on our needs. So what was happening was we were coming to white organizations and saying, hey, can we have some of those dollars that are meant for our community? And then that puts us again, agency is really important to me. Um, That puts us in a position to say, I need to ask you if I can help my community because you're holding the resources. So how do we create institutions that hold the resources? And that's what I started working on. And to date, I'm very excited that we have launched the AYA Foundation, which is a community foundation. So here in Denver, for example, some examples of that would be like the Denver Foundation, the Rose Community Foundation, Community First Foundation. Those are all community foundations that house resources, they house dollars, and then they redistribute them in the form of grants. And their organization gets to make a determination as to what their granting focus is on, which means they get to determine where those dollars go. And so now with the AYA Foundation, uh, we the foundation is in existence. It's not quite a year old yet. Um, it actually launched this year in 2022. I think by the time this launches, um, we'll be coming up on our year anniversary. And the foundation's goal is to be able to raise an endowment uh, and create a grant making program ourselves so that we can determine inside of our community where our dollars need to go. Um, and then we launched the new community transformation fund. So I have the pleasure of co-founding a venture fund. So this will be a $50 million venture fund. Um, it is a BIPOC fund, um, which, uh, transparently is not in alignment with the brand of the black business initiative. We focus on black, um, we focus on the black community specifically, but, um, but this fund is one being run by black fund managers. So that is, has not happened here in Colorado. And also um, the fund has dollars allocated towards the black community to be able to make investments inside of the community. So these are equity investments for black businesses. So those are two of the three institutions that we are working on and currently, or that we've launched those two. And currently we're now working on our third institution which is an economic development organization. Um, And so far, we have received some federal backing for that, so we are working on um, the final award amount once the the congressional budget clears, we'll know what that looks like. But we applied for congressional dollars as well as some other dollars that that are still pending to be able to set up an economic development organization so that we can begin to think about how to do economic development right with an equity lens that takes our community into account.
0: That's wonderful. And what, what I like about all three of these examples that you mentioned, each in its own space is, as I say, disruptive of the system.
1: Yes, they are. Um, and there are things that, you know, we, we just haven't had. There are things that have, have been launched around the country and other places, but not in high numbers, not in high concentration. Um, and we need to have those tools here. And we need to have practice building them, right? Like, I don't know if I built them right. <laughs> this is my first time mm-hmm. building, you know, building them. So we're, you know, we're, we launched it, we did it. Um, and we're going to just keep tweaking as we go and keep making the adjustments. And and we want it to be successful. But I think that goes back to that risk tolerance is, you know, we can't just see that there's a need and a problem in our community and be too afraid to take a step, take a stab at it at least, you know, give it a try. And so worst case scenario, the the foundation goes belly up, right? Um, I, I, of course, we hope that doesn't happen. What we actually hope is that we continue to push and garner enough support for the foundation that it has strong legs. But I always like to make a comparison. The Denver Foundation is over 100 years old and we're in year one. So we have to give ourselves a lot of grace to recognize that how much room or how how much of a gap we have to cover in order for us to be able to do some of the things that we know the other, you know, other communities are able to do. But if we don't take that first step um, with an entrepreneurial mindset, then how do we ever make that happen? How do we move from feeling like we're being victimized to understanding that something has been done to us, but we have the power to change what that looks like?
0: Exactly. And also the power to really think big and broad, you know, so often I'm struck by the fact that and it, it's, it's understandable how it happens, an opportunity is presented to us, and we're meant to be grateful. But when you really unpack it, it's pocket change compared to what's available out there. But it's not oh, yeah. like you really have the vision that you have, that you move beyond that. And so I guess that leads me to the question of, um, you know, in the last few minutes, you've talked about three institution building projects. What's next for you? Because um, some people will look at one of these and think, oh, you know, if I just get this done, it's a finish line. What I love about this conversation is this, these are just current things you're working on. Um, What happens if you succeed? You are succeeding. So what's next?
1: You know, um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I look at my dad. My dad, he worked for PG&E in California, and he did 35 years, and he retired with Gold Watch and a Pension, right, kind of thing. Um, and then you look at somebody like, um, in comparison, I'll use like a Warren Buffett, for example, who I don't know how old Warren Buffett is. He's old but <laughs> he you know he's he's still out there doing something right he's not maybe doing what he used to do 20 30 years ago but he's he's still active so i imagine for myself that uh you know i'll always be doing something um but i do feel like for the institution building, at least as far as God's vision has taken me so far is, you know, these three institutions will be legacy projects of the Black Business Initiative. And so um, I'm doing kind of two things right now uh, outside of my, my real estate is just something I've been doing in the background. Um, it's it's my legacy piece. It's one of my, um, it's a part of my investment plan for my children. But um, two things for the Black Business Initiative, we are launching economic equity consulting. And so, for the last eight years, we've been working with Black-owned businesses to help them start growing scale. And now we've launched. Uh, what by the by the end of next year, we would have launched three institutions. And uh, and now we want to help organizations that are um, serious about their public commitment and statement to be equitable inside of their organization and help them think about how to do that. So looking at like supplier diversity, procurement, where are you spending your dollars equitably? How are you spending your dollars um, and how are you creating that culture inside of your business? And so we are working uh, with organizations that want to work with us on that. And I'm clear about that because what I'm not here to do is try and convince um violent white racists to change what they're doing right if you're an organization that has made that commitment then i'm here to help those organizations actually create impact Um, we're not here to change anyone's mind and then for me personally, uh, I'm finally digging into another passion of mine, something that's always been in the background, but is really around working with high performance entrepreneurs and professionals in work life integration. Um, which, as I you know mentioned when I started my entrepreneurial journey, I didn't have the word for it, but I have been integrating my work and my life together um, for. 15 years now uh and being able to really not have that concept of like I'm going to wait for retirement um you know, or thinking that the life that I want to live is somewhere further down the line. The life that I want to live is right here. It's here right now. It's here today. It includes my work that I'm passionate about. It includes my family that I'm passionate about. It includes myself that I'm passionate about. And those things, they all work together to create the life that I want to live today, right here, right now. And so uh, I am committed to working with other entrepreneurs and professionals that want to have that experience as well.
0: Nice. I'm going to go down each of those branches. Um, So with regard to the economic equity consulting, um, so that reminds me, so when I was, before I took over the center, uh, the university hired me to be a part of a evaluation of an economic integration project in a city on the East Coast, um, much larger population than ours. Um, And it was interesting because we were working with, universities and hospitals who were being encouraged to hire folks from their communities who were mostly um, black and in this particular city, everyone coming out of prison was ending up, basically lived in two zip codes. And it was, it was a fascinating picture because there were some universities that embraced it. There were others where it was perfunctory and you know they were just going through the motions. But what struck me was the number one thing was, well, oh, you know, we want to give these contractual opportunities to black businesses, but they don't have the capacity. And so one of the things we kept pointing out <laughs> <we evaluated, laughs> is, yeah, nor will they if they never have the resources. So what is going to I take it your approach to economic equity consulting is working with those kind of large organizations. Um, What will success look like once you've taken them on this journey, do you think?
1: Yeah, I do hate the... It's like the the idea of capacity building is like the chicken of the egg, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You don't give them access to capital so that they can scale. Um, And then also you don't give them access to contracts so that they can scale. And so... so Say that again. Oh, and
0: then you wonder what happened.
1: It, right, right. Um, and so it's very frustrating to be on that end of the conversation um because it just seems like it's uh, you know, common sense that it takes money to grow a business. And so whether you whether I borrow the money or whether you give me an opportunity with a contract that I can, you know, actually get out there and get the work done and and have a profit um at the end to grow the business, right? Makes all the difference. Um but yes, we are working with organizations to help them look at how they are spending their dollars and then help them unpack that. Why do you have these requirements in place? Are these requirements actually necessary? And I think what we're finding in every aspect of equity building, you know, even in the justice system, like you're saying, why is the, you know, why do we need the checkbox of of, of your criminal history um, if you have served your time and you are done, right? Um, like, where where do we start to draw the line on how much information an organization needs to be able to make a solid decision on the ability of someone to do the work and then if you have uh, let's say for example the easiest way the easiest types of contracts i think at times are like construction contracts to think about if you have a construction contract that's a five million dollar project can you break that down into a one million dollar project and a four million dollar project and that way you can have part of your project maybe to a smaller company. You know, you have 10 buildings to paint, can two of those buildings go to a small company and the other eight go to a larger company that maybe does have the capacity, but you can help to break out your packages so that you can start to be more equitable in your spending. So that new co- that company that now has an opportunity that they never would have had before, the next time they go to do a job, they can accommodate a five or a 10 building project. Um, So I think it's important to be thinking about what things are actually necessary. And even when when we're thinking internally about where do we buy our supplies from? Where do we um, source our services from? Where is our accountant from? Where is our attorney from? um, Who is helping us with our marketing and PR? um, Are those are those opportunities for us to spend our dollars inside of our community with professionals and uh, work with them to be able to get to our end result
0: and another thing i don't know if this will be on your agenda but this has always really irritated me you'll have institutions talk about we have these career pathways and it's one thing if someone's dream is to stay entry level But if you have someone coming in as a CNA or, um, you know, a secretary, and then 30 years later, they haven't moved up, there's something wrong in that system to me because it's not just going to be their aspirations. So just planning. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, and I think I think that matters as well. And, you know, we're we're. What we want to try to avoid is specifically like the quote unquote DEI space or the JEDI space. Um, Mm. What we really want to focus on is overall how an organization is thinking about equity and uh, what types of policies are in place that help them facilitate that. And so, uh, you know, some of our our best partners are those that are in the DEI space um, that are thinking from an HR perspective that we can then come in and help that organization expand beyond the DEI space and think as a totality of their organization, how they are thinking about equity.
0: You mentioned you're moving into the life integration consulting. Um, And I love just the terminology you're using because for years, especially as moms, folks have said, oh, you know, you've got to have the balance. And the reality of it is just not possible because things are always changing and brewing and morphing. When you think about, like, when you think about your journey and what you're going to help other folks with, what are a couple of key themes if someone's striving for better life work integration?
1: So I think Clarity on what it is that they want is going to be probably the the cornerstone of work life integration. Um, and so I really talk about that. I have a, a kind of a multi layered framework that I walk through, but it really starts with intention. So I think oftentimes people are not clear about what it is that they want. Um, So, you know, you see someone else's version of success and you like aspects of that. You might see something over here. You might have society telling you what it it should look like. But what is it that you really want? And I think once we get there, we can start to work that in. Because sometimes you hear things like, oh, I want to spend more time with my children. I want to spend more time with my husband or my wife. Um, my first question to them is, what does more time look like and how much time are you spending right now? right? And so you can start to help someone kind of walk through um, ways that they can be intentional in the in the now that can really make uh, waves in their their home life or their financial life or the, you know how they treat themselves in ways that they didn't think were possible. Um, you know, if you find that you're spending an hour a day with your spouse, what does it look like to spend an hour and a half? What does it look like to spend two? Like, what does it look like to double your time in something, even if your time isn't a lot currently? Or what does it look like to increase the quality of what that time looks like? So right now you spend an hour because you're you know, sitting down on the couch at the end of the night to watch some TV? What does it look like if you are intentional about taking that hour with no TV, where you can actually sit down and talk? And what does it look like maybe in the early stages of that, where you have some, some prompting questions to help you start talking to your spouse again, because maybe it's been a long time since you have. Um, and so, you know, what are the goals? And then how do we start to integrate that now? And how do we say yes to the things that, make make more sense now for us and get us closer to those goals now, and how do we learn to start saying no to those things that don't and so all of that is kind of built inside of um, the work that I'm looking forward to doing so is that is
0: that the same as life coaching or is it different
1: you know i it probably falls in that space um, mm. I, you know i i I try to move away from the, (laughs) from the idea (laughs) or the term of coaching, but um, my coach also calls me a coach. So it probably (laughs) is, uh, it it really is in that space. I try to look at it though, in the terms of strategy, you know, and I think coaches can help you to offer strategy and help you to get clear. But once we're clear, my goal is to really work with someone on the strategy. Uh, How do you get there? And then when you, when we think we found a way To get there, like let's measure it, let's check it, and let's see how good it feels, or let's see if it doesn't feel so great. You know, how do we make those adjustments until it starts to feel good? And while we're while we're getting you to a place that feels good, um, you know, we start walking back those those uh, areas of stress. Let's also address the mindsets. And the mindset shifts and the identity shifts that need to happen inside of you as the individual because you are no longer who you once were, right? You're moving into a a new space, a new way of living, and that requires you to see yourself differently. And so that ongoing mindset work, I think, is really pivotal to making sure that you can integrate your life. Because as you continue to go, you'll need to know how to continue to make those integrations. If you're integrating with Um, a toddler or a newborn, that's going to look like a completely different integration when you're now integrating life with a teenager or when you're integrating life as an empty nester or when you're integrating life as a single person who's now getting married or as a married person who's now divorced. Like all of those integrations look different. And as you, you know, continue, as your life continues to evolve, the way that you learn to integrate your life stays the same, but the integration itself looks different
0: that's really helpful. And, you know, so personally, I'm at that empty nester phase, which it's exciting, but it's also oh my goodness, because because I have the habit of falling into work. Because it's oh, fill that time. I know how to how do I make sure I feel that time nurturing Deidre versus oh look, you're just getting more work done. So I, I definitely feel feel what you're saying. So let's say we have a, a listener today who's thinking, you know, I've always wanted to start building wealth. I hear folks talking about it. What are some initial steps that you tell people or, sorry, what are some initial steps you suggest for people who are interested in building wealth? And sometimes I assume it's taking stock of where you are, but how do you move from thinking about it into action?
1: yeah i love that um so you know i i can i have a ton of tips so i'm going to try and rattle off a couple and if there's anyone that jumps out but i have a a lot of thoughts around that um one of the things that i love is creating a floor um in my bank account and so this isn't like investing or anything but just kind of from a financial literacy tip um a lot of times you know you you ever experience like getting to the end of the month or getting close to the end of the month you know your paycheck is still a couple of days away and you're gonna go to the store and you're gonna swipe but you're not 100 sure if that swipe (laughs) is gonna go through (laughs) um so one of the things is is like being intentional to check your balance very regularly i personally recommend daily but setting a floor that's above zero like my first floor was like a hundred dollars and so if my account had 105 dollars in it i told myself i only have five dollars And so part of that was like normalizing having money. And so that you could see money in your account and you wouldn't see negatives and you wouldn't see zeros or, you know, a couple of dollars in your account. And so you can make that floor whatever you want. I mean, if your account is higher than that, think about something that would be just a stretch for you. If you have a couple thousand dollars in your account, make the, make $2,000 or $3,000 your floor. And so don't go below that number just to make sure that you stay having money in your account. Um Another thing that I would recommend are there are a lot of little apps that allow you to do small time investing. One that I love is called Acorns because you are investing in the stock market but it is investing your spare change. So if you are a person whose bank account regularly goes into the negative, I do not recommend Acorns, because what Acorns will do is every time you swipe your card, it's going to round up to the next dollar. And when it rounds up to the next dollar, it's going to take that change and it's going to hold on to it until you've reached your threshold. For me, it's five dollars. So every time, if I spend, you know, five oh one, it's going to take ninety nine cent and hold it. But if I spend, you know, Ten ninety eight. It's going to take that two cents, and it's going to hold it, and it's going to hold that all the way up until I get to five dollars, and then it's going to take five dollars out of my account and invest it in the stock market for me. Uh, and so, those are some of the you know early on things that you can do if you're at the very early stages. Um, you can also do instead of the um, the change, you can just have a small amount. Like you can invest five dollars or ten dollars or twenty five dollars a month into the stock market. What I recommend is keeping your dollars out of easy reach. So why I recommend the stock market over a savings account, for example, is because you need to not be able to get access to your dollars right away. You can pull your money out of the stock market, but you're less likely to pull it out if your stocks are down. And also, it's still going to take you 24 to 48 hours to access that money. So it makes you think, how much of an emergency is this really? And are there other options before I break into my investment account? So those are kind of like if you're at the very early stages. Um, If you are beyond some of that, I absolutely recommend cryptocurrency i personally recommend bitcoin and ethereum i'm not an investor um or i'm not a, an an advisor but i think that if you're not familiar with the blockchain or you don't understand cryptocurrency you absolutely need to find out and i and me personally because i'm not um wildly risky i i prefer to invest in something that has some staying power and so those coins have been around for a long time um even though Bitcoin just has just really been in the news for the last couple of years, Bitcoin is like something close to 15 years old. It's not it's not brand new anymore. And so mm-hmm. you do have other coins that pop up, but uh, that's one that has been here and has stood uh, a, a bit of some time. Not not a ton yet, but far more than most of the other coins on the market. Um, and its stability is um, is more indicative of the market, I believe. And so it's really more traded like a commodity instead of a currency. Um, so think about it like being traded like gold or some other sort of a, a commodity that you would want to kind of buy and keep. Um, I don't think you can underestimate real estate. I think that uh, our community gets a little bit nervous um, about real estate, but there are so many entryways in a real estate. My personal um, favorite is a buy and hold strategy for cash flow and equity. And so I, I don't know anything about the flip and the fix and flip market. Um, I know very little about uh, tax liens or wholesaling and things like that. Uh, I think those are all things that you can get into. But at the end of the day, in terms of building wealth, you have to own something. And so start with your own home, but certainly don't be afraid to. Um, You know get into an investment property and and i'll end with uh in that space of real estate is thinking long term so if i had any thought about wealth building to close out on that would be um long-term thinking like sometimes you have people who want to get into these really cute new little starter homes and that's fine however if you're thinking about this first home as your end-all be-all home then you're not thinking like an investor so it's okay if the home needs a little love and care. It's okay if it's not everything you want, because mm-hmm. if you are thinking like an investor in a year or two, you might rent that home out and move on to your next one. Or you might, you know, fix it up a little bit and sell it, uh, you know, put it back out on the market, right? So I think, uh, and, and get the equity out of it. So I think that there's a number of ways that we can be thinking about homes. But if we're worried about keeping up with the Joneses, um, we're not going to be in the right mindset to be thinking about wealth building. So hopefully, those were helpful. They really were. Like you know, I, I
0: loved how you mentioned think about creating a floor in your bank account. Um, because you know, especially when you think about these banks and their fees. And it's funny because for for ten plus years, I was. Called, it's Deidre's De kept a spreadsheet. And I've had relatives laugh at me, but I've always raised my sons like, just because the bank's the bank does not mean they always get things right. Right. So since I I don't actually keep a checkbook, I keep a giant spreadsheet. So I always know what I've done and where things should be. And every once in a while I've caught it where, you know what, something came out that shouldn't have. And so that's been a good, good lesson for my own sons about how you manage things because a lot of people i have found, they'll just live on that app as if that if as if that app is the end all be all and correct.
1: hundred percent.
0: It always it's always felt like it's a way of them controlling us. When you know it, just take a few minutes, jot down what you're doing. And also, you know, even when you have those seasons where you gotta rob Peter to pay Paul, you know how long the robbery will last until everything's made whole. <laughs> um,
1: right, right. Let's see. Good. Yeah,
0: I like that. Now, with regard to real estate, especially when you think about being in Denver, um, when you say buy and hold, I take it you're saying buy it, hold it. If you're not in it, rent it out, and have that passive income coming in.
1: Um, yes, and also, um, I, like I have property that's outside of Denver. Denver is a pretty oh. um, expensive market. Mm-hmm. It is I think you have to be okay to explore other markets. Okay. And I have to say, you know, it's
0: I always assume there's a lot going on, but it's always wonderful when you see things to confirm. You know, recently I discovered that there are a lot of us in cybersecurity. Wonderful. When I went to your most recent conference, there was a fantastic panel of just local folks working in real estate. And it was so wonderful to see because we know this is especially with hyper prices and the gentrification going on. There are black people who are in control of land in these transactions. So what I loved about your recent conference is those discussions you had with folks who are doing the work, who make it seem possible. Because oftentimes folks will say, well, you know, yeah, but we're not doing that, or we can never do that. But, you know, you had folks up there who were rocking and rolling in real estate in this city.
1: Yeah, they were. And I think, you know, um, what I love about them, too, is that they're very open to sharing. And uh, that particular panel that you're referring to, we had some folks that were brand new and some folks that have been doing it for, you know, almost 20 years. And so I think it's important for us to remember for ourselves that we're not a monolith. Um, there are those of us that are out there with the experience. And I think that kind of one of the things that I have struggled with in the messaging of the Black Business Initiative has also been the idea that everything that we do has to come from within our community. Mm -hmm. Um, The reality of it is, is that the majority of the landholders in this country and the majority of the developers and the real estate folks, they don't look like us. And so it doesn't mean that we're not out there, but it does mean that you have full agency to go and glean from them uh, information and technique and networks and resources and bring them back to our community. And I think that's perfectly okay for us to do. Uh, is to not necessarily regulate ourselves to only who looks like us, but that someone out there does look like us tells us that we can do it too. And that representation is super important. um, And we need to use that representation for where it is most effective, which is a reminder that we can get out there and do it. Um, And sometimes it can be used for leverage and it can help us to build our networks. But most certainly we need to know that we have the ability and agency to go out there and get information from anyone who has it and bring it back and apply it to our family and our own legacy.
0: Thank you for that. Um, so, so Jace, thank you so much for chatting with us today. And I, I think my last question for you, um, some of the things you said that really resonated with me, you know, just taking that asset-based vantage point of, not what happens if things go wrong, but what happens if I succeed, not being afraid to fail. And so my last question to you is, if someone wants to really start thinking about the life that they want to live right now, how would they, what do you think they should do next? And also, how can they get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so I think if you are really serious about wanting to live the life that you want to live, you have to spend some alone time. Um, one of the things that we are battling with is what everyone else has said, and and it doesn't mean that people have said things in um, for harm or you know to be malicious. It's just people tell us what they think. Our parents tell us what they think we should be doing, um, how we should grow up. Our teachers told us. We have the media and TV and, you know, entertainment um, colleagues who have told us this is what you should do. This is the way that you should go. And there's a lot of what you should, should, should. And we have to spend a little bit of time um, breaking away from that and saying, what do I want to do? And if you don't know, being okay to start the exploration process exposing yourself to opportunities and seeing where you want to go right um, and so I, I think though that 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 alone time and getting really clear and like mapping out um, whether it's a vision board, which I'm a huge advocate of, whether it's a journal, a journal entry, which I'm a huge advocate of, whether it's you writing it down on a piece of paper and sticking it in the mirror um, or a sticky note and putting it on the mirror somewhere, um, getting clear on that goal, on what that life looks like is the the basis of you being able to start crafting that life for yourself. Um, And so I think that would be, you know, the The first place to start and then remind yourself, like, what if this is not a dream? What if this is a real roadmap to where I want to be? And, um, and then starting your journey. And so um, I appreciate you taking the time to um, dig in and get to know a little bit more about me and my work. And you can reach Black Business Initiative um, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at BBI Professional. And you can reach me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at Jice Johnson. Well, again, thank
0: you so much. Um, Not only for what you do for community, but just how you walk through the world. I am pleased to know you and um, look forward to seeing what you build next. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today and the final episode of our first season. Wow. So we're, <laughs> we're already working on season two. Meanwhile, please let us know your thoughts about the pearls of wellness and the topics we've worked to highlight during this first season. A friend recently reminded me that although as the saying goes, hurt people hurt people, the converse is also true free people, free people. I hope that some of the discussions during the past seven episodes have helped you to understand your own path or contained a gem that you could share with someone else. Again, thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Dieter Johnson. Remember, everything can be transformed. So design the you that you want to become. See you next season.